Well, welcome back everyone to another episode of The Few with me, Boo. Super excited about today's guest. If there's one thing that connects us as human beings, no matter what our race, color, creed, belief systems, it's music. And if you think about achieving a life dream or a life ambition, actually being able to be in the music industry alone, even as an employee, as somebody who moves the deck chairs around is an awesome is an awesome goal. But to be an executive and an entrepreneur and then to found your own business in that music space is incredibly phenomenal. So we're gonna share a journey today. No doubt we'll get to share some of life's ups and downs along this journey. So with no further ado, I'd like to introduce our guest today. Welcome to the Few Podcast. Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. So you want to become one of the few. You can't skip steps. You have to put one foot in front of the other. Things take time. I have a dream. I have a dream. Hear inspiring stories from the few and learn what it takes to turn your dream into reality. Don't be afraid to dream big. But remember, dreams without gold are just dreams. This is The Few with Boo. Nick Holmston. Nick, how are you, mate? Thank you so much for coming on The Few with me today. Really appreciate it. Very grateful for your time. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm good. I mean, um, today in New York, we actually have almost spring weather, so couldn't be better. Fantastic. Well, down here in, uh, in Florida, it's the opposite. It's cold and wet. So who knows? With today's weather patterns, and as we were just talking about all the crazy going on in the world, you know, very little is predictable. So Nick, tell us about music and your relationship with it. I mean, you're pretty much living the dream, I would say, for most people being in the music industry. Is it something that you've just always connected with? I mean, like, I think when you speak to people that has the privilege to work with things that is their passion. And I think that I feel so lucky for that because I've always been into music. I mean, like my whole life, if you go back is even since I was like a young kid, there was always music in, in the house and start playing instrument early, created bands, you know, like back in, yeah, it's almost embarrassing when I'm thinking how old I am, but like in the early seventies, you know, like it's crazy when I started my first band and on that way it's been, it's always been around me. And the funny thing about it is that I always see myself, you know, like extremely driven by passion. I don't really have like a relationship with money. I mean, like money is not really a driver for me. So a lot of people, I, especially in our music and, and the journey that started with us having that as an interest and then getting, you know, for different reasons. That's the funny thing about life, isn't it? Like you do something and one thing lead to another. And for me, it's been like being in the music industry, doing, you know, the same thing that everybody is trying to create and become a star. You don't really reach where you want. I ended up, you know, becoming more like a guy behind the scene of writing and producing for artists, had the privilege to work with big artists and meet really impactful people. And I still remember it like yesterday because my wife and I just had our first kid, you know, like, and I started working for Simon Cowell and Simon Cowell said something to me, and this is pre idol day. It was just when the first idol season came out, but he said something like this, which really was something that I took on early. He said like, you know, it's very simple, Nick, you know, the music industry about one thing, when you reach the 21 year nurse working at the suburban of London, and when she's listening to your music, you have reached everyone. And there's something really interesting about that. 
And that kind of was something that carried on, you know, like when I started writing for artists and then when Pirate Bay kind of took over the music industry, especially where I'm coming from, Sweden and Nordic countries, you know, we started to see like a whole industry collapsing. And without knowing that, for some reason, when you are, have a passion for music, you're trying to find a solution, like how you're going to survive? What is the revenue model moving forward? So small thing led to another. So I get also interesting. I've always been on the tech scene. So I surrounded with me with angels and great people. And we started to do startups. And this is, keep in mind, like this is the end of, of like middle of 2000, you know, and you know, 2007, you started to see that there was a lot of activities like Spotify was created, you know, SoundCloud, and I was doing, you know, like what we call that MySpace killers so long back. What was the go there? I mean, I remember now Pirate Bay, peer-to-peer, you know, sharing platforms. That was a massive crisis for the music industry, wasn't it? It was incredible because, and I think especially Sweden, I think it was an interesting, when you think about it now, I'm probably going to come to the story what happens after that with Spotify and, and the journey that I ended up doing there, is that because of the impact, the fact that Pirate Bay was hosted in Sweden, and that kind of gave this brutal decline, I think after a while, the industry realized that if we're going to get out of that, we need to try these new kind of, you know, like software solutions that people seem to be building, especially like in the Nordic countries. So I think like when I spotted what Daniel was doing on Spotify and everybody started to say like, this is really the solution. It triggered me in a lot of different ways, you know, like, and I think a lot of people missing out, like I'm ranting about this, but I think it's important for the story. The music industry, what people miss about that is when it was a retail industry, not everybody bought records. It was like 25% of, of people that listened to music that actually went into record store. Most of the people got served through radio, TV, whatever it was, and maybe, you know, bought a cryptid grace or something like that. But it was really for music buffs to go into stores. And my thinking at that time, when we went from seeing like what streaming could do, we kind of took the two worlds, the retail world and the radio world and kind of put them together. So my strategy, and we talking about, I mean, this is like 2008, 2009, was that like music industry is going to be very different if everyone has all the music that exists in their pocket. So that was led to us starting to thinking about like, I remember when I walked to New York, I went to New York when I was young and I went into these like boutique hotels and they play these yashi launchy music that kind of just set the tone and the feeling and the vibe of it, which made me realize that enriching lives moments with music is not, should not be constrained by your budget. The fact that you had all the music, I felt like there's another way to curate all music. So that's when we created a playlist company that eventually got acquired by Spotify and what to say the rest is history. But it was really about the fact that Spotify was able to get like this test license in the Nordic countries because they had nothing to lose. And that proved to become like what saved the music industry, which is really fascinating. So what was the difference between the Nordic countries and the rest of the world when it came to this sort of hotbed of streaming music? It was the first thing was like Spotify was only available in these countries. So there was no one else that I really have access. Some people use VPNs and try to create Swedish accounts just to see how it works. And we had a total collapse in the music industry. Everybody was kind of pirating music, downloading, you know, like no one was using. And when Spotify started coming, these beta verses that people can try them, you know, like everybody realized 
if there was a service like this, maybe this is something I could pay for because I think it's a lot of hassle to use these BitTorrents and download tracks and organize them and stuff like that. So looking back, you know, like I think Daniel and Martin, when they started Spotify, was like the option to piracy is Spotify. And it's a different model from a revenue perspective. And I must say it took probably, I would say, 10 years for the labels to understand that this was for them at least a way better financial model where suddenly their back catalog got new value and so on. So they're making more money than ever. But at that time, it was very difficult for them because they were not set up and artists were not set up. It's difficult to understand the model, how I get paid. You know, it is a tricky model to understand. And I, I think a lot of people today have problems to understand, but the overall industry that you need to think about has went from like, the really like from a dark place into a completely different world. It still challenges though, but it was unavoidable. Like their technology, you can never hold back technology. You know that that is the way the world works. Yeah. I mean, it's the backbone now. I mean, that information is served digitally. I mean, that is just the reality of, of our lives. I want to go back to what triggered in your mind, because you went from being that employee-based mindset, supporting the big acts, writing songs, writing music. And then obviously, you know, something must have twigged and then you founded Snowfish, which I think is your kind of first kind of real startup. Like what was it about making the jump into entrepreneurialism, letting go of the pay packet and the salary and the safe world? What was it that A, motivated you and B, gave you the confidence to do it? Yes, to be clear, like I actually had another job before Spotify, but I usually refer Spotify to my first employment. You know, like before that, I was always like an entrepreneur in the music industry, driving production companies, you know, like whatever it was. And I think like, because I'm kind of wired in that way, I'm solution driven. I realized that this is going to be a huge problem. If I'm staying here and thinking that I'm going to run my business and publishing and all these different things and write songs, if the music industry collapse, so I felt like it was almost like a, I needed to at least explore the opportunity. The Snowfish model was really based on the fact that all the kind of social media platform at that time didn't have any rev share solution. They have today, but at that time they didn't have it. So we came up with a thing like if you upload stuff on our platform, we share all the revenues. You know, like it was a 50-50 kind of model. Uh, we got some support from uh, some big artists that become angels for the company. But as you know, like everything, when you're building whatever you do in the world, like you're going to fail more times than you succeed, but you're going to learn and you're going to move on. So I think the platform with Snowfish started out, and I don't think people know that, but the community never, ever kind of build up to the level we need to make it happen. But what it led to is that we used the platform to try to create, you know, talent competition like Idol on, online. So we use the same platform to work with a big telco and Spotify to create two seasons of something called Next Big Thing, which was based on the Snowfish platform. And that's how we started to build a relationship into what then eventually become like Tunigo, uh, which we got support from the same two companies, Spotify and the, and the big telco that was a partner with Spotify. So for some weird reasons, you start somewhere and you know you're going to pivot 10 times. You know, I always refer to when people talk about like, I mean, keep in mind, like Spotify was never really meant to be a premium service. The whole system was built on a BitTorrent platform and an advertising model where both Daniel and Martin came from. And they tried to combine these two and find a financial model, but 
record labels force them to create a premium. So I mean, like after time, you're shifting, you learn, you try error, you like you move on, you know how it works. Like so, it's that is probably the story that like a new door open and you go into it and then you don't know Peter is gonna you have to go back and find a new door or that takes you to another door and that's life. At that point in time, were you a fairly kind of small community where you all knew what each other were doing and playing in the shadows of this BitTorrent kind of world? Was there a like an underground movement of you all or was everyone off just sort of doing their own thing? No, it was really like that. I think what people usually say, like, you have to have people in your community or close to you that get successful to see. I mean, like, we can see that on Swedish songwriters, like the biggest songwriter in the world or having most billable one is Max Martin. And the fact what he has done for the music industry in Sweden and songwriters is that it's what sports do to communities as well. If someone becomes a world champion or whatever they do is encourage people to believe. I think 95% of success sits in your head. You know, like I think everybody can really force themselves to train, but if you have that extra drive that needs and you never give up, you're going to get there. And I think what happens at that time, people start to see that Spotify draw a lot of attention, SoundCloud draw a lot of attention. And that also intrigued the whole kind of, I think, tech industry, because there's a bunch of Swedish, very successful tech companies that people never know is Swedish, but everything came out from that movement and that time period. As you know, if you have a lot of really skilled engineers and they work together and move between companies and you get to know them, like that is a really, really powerful thing. So I think Spotify and all these other companies that becomes like massive global entities encourage so much spin-off of people for startup mentalities. It's almost like that was like the Northern Europe's kind of old Silicon Valley become at that time. And especially around these music, tech, new solutions, you know, like and disrupt the industries. It was a fascinating time to be having the privilege to be part of. And what was the switch or the change between Snowfish into Tunigo? Was that because of those APIs and because of the architecture that Spotify created? Was it to just take advantage of that moment? It was a combination. I mean, like at that time, a big telco in Sweden was really crucial for Spotify success because they started to bundle, you know, Spotify premium within to their models, you know, like which draw a lot of people actually starting to get premium subscription. And for the telco that we were working so close with, they also start saying like, but how can we create, you know, new functions, services, features on top of that relationship? That's what led us into starting exploring the whole kind of playlist world and what that would mean. Because at that time, I don't know if you remember, playlist was usually like long URL address with like a title. And I think the very small difference was like when we reflected into like how the iTunes store looked, it was way, way more like nice. There was images, there was good descriptions, you know, like there was something that was interesting and you couldn't understand why the streaming world was so technical, you know, to discover music. So, and the other thing is that we also felt like everybody kind of did the same that they did in the physical world. So it was like, hits compilations, you know, like there was no one that really zoomed into the actual use cases that exist out there and the opportunity. So I think a lot of people, I remember when I was telling people early around the Tunigo strategy and when we started to build a platform and become a partner to Spotify when they had their own apps, which everything started, is that it was very difficult for people at that time to describe what we were doing. Today, I mean, everybody knows that playlist is what drives, you know, like the whole kind of streaming world, you know, 
But at that time, you know, even when Spotify bought Tunigo 2013, Spotify didn't have any playlists, you know, like, so when I came in, that was what I, what I created, what everybody now takes for granted. But at that time, I can tell you. Oh, but, but playlists, I mean, everyone, everyone listens to music via playlists. You know, it's the digital equivalent of a mixtape, isn't it, really? Yeah. I mean, and before Spotify playlists, it was really up to people to know someone that could put together a playlist and hope that they can share it with you. And But when you went into the application of Spotify, it was more based on like you have a search window and you find tracks that you like and you drag them into your playlist uh, or you store them and you have like these massive tracks. But we realized that it's such a big difference if someone, if you have, I, I always said it's referring to like, it's interesting when you think about music taste. Music taste has always been based on budget. So if you, when you grew up, if you were into like, I'm into glam rock or I'm into like Euro disco, I'm into metal, whatever, that's what you were. And you become like your profile or something. And you didn't really went out through any kind of directions because it was limited to your cost. So when you want to put on some slow music, you know, like, or something that cools down, you took like maybe the ballads from these records or whatever happens. What we said was a little bit like music taste, if every music is available, is very different. I promise you that you listen to different music if you're going to go out with your friends on a Friday evening versus when you wake up on a Sunday morning with your wife. Like your music taste gonna shift pretty dramatically. Or if you wanna like, I wanna focus because I wanna study, or I wanna have a cocktail party in a Frank Sinatra kind of why, because it's a little bit poshy and I want to set the mood for a thing. And I think when people start to realize that how important music was for these moments, that's where I think all the floodgates open. And that's where like Spotify playlists exploded because suddenly they can come in and you choose your music more based on modes and moments versus genres, which was like the absolute biggest shift that we did. I remember when that sort of started to happen and people were like, oh, this is kind of weird. But at first it's like, actually, I kind of get it. And you're starting to have, I can remember when you used to have music by mood and you're sort of thinking, how would it know? How would it know what my mood was? How would it know what music is going to meet my mood? But it's just so eponymous with music now that you can just find a mood, a feeling, and then just get a playlist that just meets it. It's a pretty phenomenal achievement, you know, like it's a pretty big deal. And, and then to take that to get bought by Spotify and then ultimately end up, you know, head of music. I mean, that's almost like being God. I mean, being head of music at Spotify. I mean, that's a, I mean, if you look at that, is there anything more complex than that job? I mean, that pretty much covers every genre of music and personality style and mood and moment. It's like you're plugging into the very emotional center of humanity through music. I mean, that must have been a huge role. I mean, it was crazy. I mean, I went from, you know, being a passionate music guy in Stockholm to in a few years, actually sitting in the front seat. Because when I joined Spotify 2013, it was a big startup. It got a lot of traction in the Nordic countries and some European countries, not really happening in the US yet, you know, like, so I remember, you know, the journey of being there and, 
eventually heading out because like my first was really to bring in playlists and started to hire all these people and create these brands that everybody today take for granted if it's like rap caviar today's topics new music friday viva latina you name it every playlist brand was like we brought in culture people that understand different cultures that has an expertise of whatever it was so we start building and then you say like i want you to keep doing the same thing that you did before you know like but now you have the resources of a real company so we exploded this and built, you know, global team. And, and as you know, like first you're trying to capture, you know, like the global kind of hits uh, spectrum. But then when you tune in, you're going to realize that in every region, there's a domestic kind of style and there's different genres. So it's, it's never any story. But since playlists then become the secret weapon, you know, like, and that kind of changed the music industry. When I took over even like the artist side and the industry side and became the global head of music, I mean, like I could not imagine like in these three, four years, like going from one place to basically having one of the biggest role in the music industry and have the privilege because the music industry is very conservative. It's really based on long-term relationship. And suddenly like was this new guy from Sweden that suddenly will look at from every aspect, like the person you need to work with, because if you're going to break your artist. So, I cannot tell you like that. It was educational. It was a crazy roller coaster ride, but it's it's a blessing to be able to to go through that journey. I, I don't really have words on it, and I think sometimes when I think back on it, it feels a little bit surreal, you know. Like, but it went very very quickly, and then moving to the U.S. and so on and move on. Is that sort of role even sustainable, or is it so? consuming and take so much of you that it's almost like unsustainable. Could you be in that role forever? It's almost like you're the epicenter of a brain. It was a little bit like this as well. Like when I joined Spotify, I'm a builder, you know, like I never planned to stay seven years at Spotify. It was more like, it felt still the same as being a startup. You're like, you, Daniel is really, really good of giving people responsibility and accountability and have them run with things if he trusts them. And I got that trust to do that. I think what really, to your point around, like it gets overwhelming after a while because it also gets more and more complicated because there's also like in Spotify, a lot of like machine learning, AI, personalization things. It's like you have a hands-on in an editorial industry way where you need to know what's happening in the culture. And then you have all these people, thousands of engineers just working on trying to make sense of all these things that happens that is editorial curated by tagging it. Bench machines get smarter and smarter. And, you know, the input from humans and understand how to tag up songs and the relationship with songs and what to recommend. Suddenly, like the machine's starting to become really good, you know, like, and that's where I felt a little bit at that time. The company has grown to a massive, massive company. We moved down to four world trade and had like 14 floors or something crazy like that. And that was a corporation for me. So I went from like a very flat world in hierarchies and companies in Sweden that I felt was me into ending up, you know, seven years later in a massive corporation, which was a completely different dynamic. More in stakes, you know, like it's more politics, it's a different way to work. So I felt at that time, you know, like when these other opportunities was knocking on my door that, you know, like I had an incredible ride. Daniel and I are still super close and friends, you know, like I have so much to thank Spotify for because it was an incredible journey. So when I decided to leave, it was really nice, you know, like I felt like I have accomplished what I wanted to do. 
And of course, when you leave something like that, you have a lot of competitors reaching out to you and ask you. And, but for me, it was that. And I said it to everyone, like, because every time when you do these things, it's always like, for a big public company, what is the reaction of when someone in leadership leaving and what is that impacting? But it was never like that. And as I made it very clear, like, you don't have to think about it one second that I would jump on, even if there was great offers from going to competitors and do the same thing, because I already done that. So I had no, it's not what drives me, but like, that's not the reason I exist. I want to, what is the thing, you know, like, what do I want to do? And for me, I wanted to get a little bit more back to, you know, the music, the creation of it a little bit, like. I've always been fascinating with like the fan and artist interactions, which is what drives the music industry today. When I was a Spotify, we realized when these brands that we build become so strong. So when we took like a rap caviar on tour, like we sold out with Live Nation, everything, and they wanted to get everyone on tour. And I think that was the rewarding mechanism that I was looking for. The artist was like over the moon, you know, I love being there. They basically played for free. And the fans was there. So we become that connecting tissue. That was something that really stuck with me because when you live in a digital world, you're following numbers and data, but to be in the real world and see, and I think everybody can relate to that, how important that is for us when we went through these two years of lockdown, like no one want to go back to that. I mean, entertainment, that was crazy. You know, like you need that energy that is in all entertainment and experiences. And I missed that piece of it. So I would think that was the main reason to feel like I wanted to do something new, more challenging or another type of challenge. Yeah, because no doubt you could have made a decision to just go and go fishing for the next 20 years of your life, right? You get to that point. Got a question for you though. Spotify is quite famous for its operating model as well. The way that I guess they say it's scaled agile and it was the first real, the organization that had that agile mindset all the way through. Did you notice that? Did you notice it was just different in the way that people work together there? Or is that how they scaled so quickly? Because it had that small startup kind of feel, which eventually you know, must peter out. There must be a size of enterprise where it almost becomes impossible. But did you notice that it was different that way? It was different, I think, but I think the biggest different thing is like, if you think about all, and I think Spotify today is a completely different animal. So I can't really speak exactly what operation model is, but what I think happens when a startup grows that quickly, you also know that Spotify was a very young company. It didn't have like the old structure where you usually have like leadership that has been around for a long time and just trickle down. This was all very passionate people about if, if it was music or tech or wanted to find solution. So it was a very young company and young companies, you don't really have a handbook for how you operate them. So I think Spotify tried a lot of different operation models. And you know, when you grow so quickly, you need to change the operation models all the time because an operation model that works for 500 people might not work for 2000 people and the 2000 people might not work for 5,000 people. So. It was definitely a very agile kind of setup, but I also think that it was way more trials and errors and problems within the company than where you are on the outside looking in. I think you see what really works, but there's also a lot of tests and trials and things that really didn't work, you know, like, but because they had the luxury of growing, not only with people, but that also means that you grow very financially and you get a lot of money to work with, you can use a lot of resources to find your perfect way, which I think very few companies has that luxury, you know, like deploy so much capital where you can 
take in all these people and if it doesn't work, it doesn't matter. It was a little bit like a gold rush and there was incredible valuations and people want to throw money at the company, which made it very easy for hiring. And it was not so important about like the p &L at that time. It was growth. So I think that is not a lot of companies in the tech world. We have seen it in other companies, but I think it's very difficult to compare that to traditional industries and their operation models, because this is a new wave of tech companies. And I think Spotify looked at the Facebooks and the Googles and implemented versions of their models. And I think everybody tried and Spotify found their model, which was very successful. But behind the scenes, there was also a lot of things that didn't work. But in the end, it showed like that was the right strategy to get them where they are. I want to ask you a question about culture. And you sort of mentioned it a little bit earlier around Scandinavian culture, the way you work together in Scandinavia. And most people have an opinion, which is, yeah, very socially aware and very collective and community-based and very much an equal kind of outcome counts and everything's clean and tidy and kind of works. And everyone goes a little bit crazy in the deep depths of winter. Hi, it's Boo here. If you're enjoying these episodes of The Few, please show your support by leaving a review. It costs you nothing and the more reviews we have, the better guests we can reach out and bring onto the show to help you close the gap between what you want and where you are today even faster and help you on your journey to become one of the few too. So you've got that Scandinavian model, then you've got a US model. How did you find the two cultures and how much is that a driver of corporate culture as a result? Or do you think everyone in corporate's just the same? No, it's a huge difference. And I think it comes from the culture kind of. Swedes are, I mean, like Swedes and Americans are so different in so many ways. And I think everybody comes back to the fact that Sweden is a very caretaking company. What I mean with that is that we have a high tax, but we get enormous amount for it. And I realize how incredible Sweden is right now when I move to the US. Because like when I tell people that the taxes in New York is almost like Swedish taxes, but you don't really get anything. And you tell people like you got free healthcare, you got like free education all the way to college, free childcare, like everything is free, free, free. And that's what comes through the tax payment. And I think that for Swede gives you like comfort. You're not born to be whipped, you know, like for your parents and you need to call the shift, but otherwise you're fucked and you get on the street. That doesn't happen, which I think, you know, creates a completely different personality. And we also on the other side, very kind of flat hierarchy. When we build offices and stuff like that, usually even the CEO can sit in an open landscape, you know, like with all the others. And when you come to the US, which you know, it's the total opposite, you know, like, so I think Spotify tried to kind of take the good pieces from the US culture and then embed the good thing from Sweden. But if you look at history, what's usually is very difficult for Spotify's leadership, and it's just fact, it's not me saying, it's very difficult as an American, if you're not CFO, to survive in the Spotify management. Because it's very based on Swedish values. So in the end, you know, for some reasons, we are so different. I usually make one thing that I realize here, and it took me a while to understand like how money driven and how the constitution works in the US and why we are where we are. And I fully respect it. Otherwise I wouldn't be here. But when I put on my Swedish hat, you know, like a lot of these values change. So I need to operate between them. And we usually have a saying that like, it's almost like in the US, you can do whatever to become successful and show that you're making all this money and people will like say like, great done. In Sweden, it will be more about like your way of making this money. If you are breaking rules to get there, 
no one looks up to you in Sweden. So there's like, everybody's a little bit like more cautious around like the steps they take to get there because it's a different value form. And I think my learning is that I, and US has a lot of things that is way, way better than Sweden. I think there's a lot of things in business that are better drivers. I think people are it, but they also drilled in a way that like, they are extremely focused and they need to get the success and it's the money's driving why Swedes are more about like, am I happy? Is this working for me? Because I don't have to worry about the safety that it's like, I get it now why it's so different. But I think a lot of people don't understand that that safety net we have in Sweden, even if Swedes don't think it like that, it's really changing the perspective of like, it's not going to be like, I lose my job. And I have to pull my kids from college and I have to move something, you know, like, and I can end up on the street, which actually happens here. That doesn't happen. And when you know that that could happen to you, you're like, of course, your mental model of what you need to do is completely different. What I have realized the biggest change, you know, like, and then you just need to navigate these differences, but it is difficult because we're coming from different worlds, you know, and I cannot say which one is best. We just different, you know? Yeah, and I think there it highlights the importance of diversity and bringing in all these different cultures and taking the best of all of it, right, in a hot pot and then making the best meal you possibly can. You're in another entrepreneurial phase, pretty big one, having moved from Spotify. And no doubt that transition coinciding around COVID as well must have been pretty interesting for you. So what's the story behind TSX? Where are you going with it now? What does Nick think music needs next? Yeah, it's a crazy story because... This is like maybe 2018, 2019. And I, that time when I was at Spotify, I said, like, I think the streaming services need to figure out, like, what is the 2025 version of like DMTV, TRLs and the Tower Mega Stores or Virgin Mega Stores, the Tower Records, like, what is that version offline? You know, because we need to take our responsibility because the music industry, when it moved to like fully digital, and I always come back and that is like my creative side of me knows why people start become artists is not because of money. It's because they want to tell a story. They want to express themselves. That's why all these other media that kind of disappeared when streaming came kind of made it difficult for artists to really reach out because they went from having big magazine documentaries, you know, takeovers here and there, and that they can take like a record store and, you know, really show their face, everything. And suddenly they were fighting about getting their face on a, on the playlist covering the mobile. So I realized every time we did these massive campaigns with artists, especially around Times Square, like an artist ran down and took photos on these billboards and set them up on the social media. And they started to realize that the kind of vanity aspect of the storytelling is so crucial for artists. So when I went down to Times Square to look at space for Spotify, I ran into a lot of people and I started to really compile a lot of data points because I grew up, you know, like with MTV in Sweden and TRL. And when I came there for 25, 30 years ago, like Times Square was so different because it felt like the epicenter of entertainment. Even Toys R Us was like an immersive experience with a ferry wheel and stuff like that. And when I came back here, I realized it was mostly like sovereignty shops and fast food. It didn't reflect the fact that there was like more than 400,000 people every day on the square and more than 100 million people coming there. And every day it was like 85% of these people get replaced by new people. It was like a rotating door and everybody came to be entertained and there was nothing happened outside the Broadway scene. So that was draw me down. 
And then when after a few months, when I was down there trying to look at it and everything was very expensive and long-term to get into it, I get very close to some of the lenders of a building I was in and looking for space that was called Fortress Investment Group. And they were in a lot of these calls when I was talking about the future of entertainment and why it's important even that the digital world needs to be more physical and, and the competition about cutting through the noise is going to be more and more problematic. And we have seen that totally now. Uh, and it's going to take more to break through that noise. So you need to create these kind of physical events and use like the platform and the existing way to communicate as an amplifier. So I felt like everybody, it was like the checkbox. If you take like the biggest brands in the world and you combine that with the most traffic location in the world, it felt like a really good setup. But the question was like, can you, can you make it happen? And then these guys from Fortress said like, we actually have another building because they realized it was very difficult to navigate and find you know, terms on the other building. That building now, and it's going to come up in a few years, is called TSX Broadway. We want to discuss with you if you will be interested to be involved in some way. And I said to them, like, and it was really straightforward for me, like, I don't want to be a consultant. And I kind of joke about it and say, like, but if you want to create an entertainment company based on that building, I could consider to have a conversation with you. And they said, like, yeah, you know, like, it's still early days. It was meant to be a big retail project. But, you know, retail kind of died in New York and flagship stores at Times Square isn't what it used to be. So we, we really struggle on finding tenants and really understand the strategy of the building and they told me about it and i was kind of blown away with and they had this kind of trying to build the st first stage there massive billboard hotel like retail restaurants all these different things felt like the first time i saw it like something that you see in vegas but it was kind of up down right in times square felt like a digital for music for me so there was something really compelling with it and one thing led to another and, and they say like came back to me and said, like, we're interested to create a JV with you and see if you can get legs, you know, like, so what will it take for you to do that? And this is like somewhere, you know, like fall 2019, moving towards Christmas 2019, you know. And I was at that stage, I said, like, I felt like I didn't have so many more challenges at Spotify. So I felt I was like, this is probably impossible. And we talked about the possibility that it's going to happen. It was pretty low, but you know, I also felt like if I can be part of changing the entertainment industry by bringing back entertainment to Times Square and find something that really fits into what I felt was missing, I had problems to say no to that, even if I know the chances that we would pull off was small. So we agreed on this and we actually signed agreement two weeks after New York was closed down in March 2020, which was a really weird situation, as you can imagine. Yeah. So, um, but the interesting thing is that like we did this agreement, give it 12 added amounts to see if we can build a business case and see if we can raise capital against it. And COVID hit and no one knew what that would mean. The interesting thing when I started to reach out to my friend in the industry and everybody was shut right home, they were like, Here's someone coming and talking about what's going to happen afterwards. And this sounds awesome. So we realized that people were blown away with it. And I went back to Fortress Ella. We should take in some capital and some equity here because I think some of these big players artists want to be involved. So it ended up that we took in some equity from a bunch of big stars and management and stuff like that. But I think give Fortress confidence to keep building on it. And then it's been that process, you know, small pieces falling in place, you know, like COVID really from my perspective, helped to drive the entertainment strategy because I think that kind of made a lot of other potential paths to basically disappear. And then they were kind of left a little bit with like the entertainment strategy and they started to really understand that this is the solution for the building. 
But you know, this is a $3 billion project and there's a macroeconomic situation right now around real estate and interest rates and stuff like that. So it's always like a challenge to moderate or, or navigate these things. But step by step, we've been on that journey. We are not a massive company today. What well, we were about like 35 employees, something like that. We have a, a lot of tech people, but what's holding us back from really starting like the big hire is when we get in closer where we are right now with the construction and starting to open up all the experiences and that. So we, you're going to see an explosive growth. And during that period, the first thing we did was really starting working with the billboard that came up on the building. And after that, when we started to do pop-up things on the stage, that's when people started to realize that, because I can tell you, you know, when you do this crazy project, we have had a lot of conversations. I think it was the same thing with the swear in Vegas and what Dolan did there. No one really believed in it until it opens up and people understand what it is. PSX is very similar. I think when we did the Post Malone event, I cannot tell you my phone never stopped ringing. That was like one of these moments and we got now shortlisted for four Clio awards, which is like the biggest marketing award you can get for these activities. So it creates like kind of shockwaves where people finally come and say, now I understand what you guys are doing. But it, I tell you, it's a daily fight. We're planning now for the next big thing that's next big kind of event. And we're taking these steps, but every step we take, we're making it bigger and we're moving towards. And when the whole building opens up, you know, I like, can see what the whole vision is. Like people will say like, aha, uh -huh, now I get it. You know, like I feel the similarities to a lot of things I've done in my life. I don't know why I jump on things early and it's always really complicated to explain these things for people and my view of the world and what I think the crystal ball is telling us. That's what drives me. And I, sometimes I'm wrong. Sometimes I'm right, but I need to have that because passion is what drives me. And this is a passion project for me. It's like a baby. I work with it for four years right now. So I never, if people would tell me it's going to take five, six years before up and running, I would never have done it. But you know, it's like I said before, door closes, new doors open. It's like, it's every day. It's like a kind of motivate you, energize you and go out there and try to get it, you know, and it's tough. That's what life is about. And I wouldn't do it if I didn't felt it was worth it. You said it earlier about it's what people believe, right? Like if you believe it and you're passionate about it, it's just navigating the rivers, the creeks, the rocks, the swamps, the forests, and inevitably you get there. And Nick, so to wind up, I'm going to ask you three quick questions. As head of music at Spotify, who was your favorite artist? Oh, that was a difficult one. I think I was... That was a bunch of artists. That was a reason just, you know, like why Post Malone become the first artist. What I really love about the music industry is the stories behind the artist. I think the same stories with Weekend. I think Weekend and Post Malone is like, it's not the traditional kind of route. There's like, it's coming from a place where your personality and your story and everything you do is the foundation of you as an individual. If we take Post an example, like, He's by far the nicest person you can meet in the industry. He's like a Southern guy that kind of always says, yes, sir, no, sir, you know, like, and he's there in time, he's doing what he's doing, he's loved by everyone, he's loved by his audience, stuff like that. So Post is definitely one of my go-to favorite artists and was on Spotify. And for working with him from, you know, like I had an incredible team, I remember that the record label didn't like the fact that the Spotify said, like, we're not going to go with a track you suggest a single. We think the song Rockstar is 
they and there was so much conversation and they they hated us for it but we knew that our team and the people that really made these decisions really had their ear to the ground. They knew what happened. They knew what the platform looked like. They know how our playlist and recommendation system work. And that was the reason that Rockstar blew up. So that learned me a little bit around it, you know, that when you're looking into that, if, if you are able to position an artist and help an artist with the right storytelling and it's, the timing is right, it becomes extremely rewarding. And I felt at that time that the artists that I love working with was when I really find out the story behind them. I didn't like when the record label came with a product and say like, here's the new artist that we want to kind of promote. And it was not really a story. And this, all the songs were written from different camps and the artist was maybe like a social media or TV or whatever it was like, and you put them together. So going back to it, like I listen to so much music, but if I'm going to take one of these big artists, I think the weekends, the Post Malone's and there's a Drake's and there's a bunch of these and all chungers that I think coming from a place where they have been so determined around the long-term strategy, but it's been way later in their path when they got picked up by the system and promoted. Again, it's the old fashioned, like so many people get confused and they think that good values and being a good person is not synonymous with success, that somehow there's a hack or somehow you've got to be a crook to, to get there. There's an awesome story to reinforce, you know, good is great. <laughs> What about the most successful artist? Who do you think leveraged off Spotify and absolutely went stratospheric as a result or the most listened to? I think it's an interesting thing because we, we usually talked about it and it still holds up. When you think about the model, I think this is interesting what to crack into the music industry and understand the difference. It's way more complicated today than it was two or three years ago. The algorithms and everything has changed. It's not the editorial playlist part that makes it or break it, it's a system. And unfortunately, TikTok is also a big player in this new kind of discovery model. But going back, there was a time when there was a bunch of artists that was like breaking through. And I always refer to like the EDM, the Avicis, you know, like the Kaibos of the world, the Swedish House Mafia, the, yeah, you know, there was Calvin Harris, like there was a lot of artists in the era when Spotify exploded that still, get so much stream out from the system. And the way it worked, though, is the difference what I said from the beginning and what is the kind of falter a little bit in the system is that in the beginning, Spotify was a really lean-in experience. People choose songs, play them. Over time, when all the mainstream people come in, it becomes more like a lean-back experience where people basically press a play button. The interesting thing about the financial model in platforms like Spotify is that machines looking for some kind of, of like reactions, like someone's skipping a track or you're saving a track and stuff like that. But what happened now is that if you're once in the system, it's not a lot of negative input to the machines. So everything is about like, how do I get into the system? Because the system works like this. If people seem to be playing these songs and like them and they don't get any negative feedback, they're going to keep promoting them. So that means the big song gets bigger, you know what I mean, like, and breaking through becomes impossible. So it's a little bit of systems where you even can look at the people that came into the system during like the really rise of Spotify, still generating a massive amount of streams because they are in the system. So I think what we're seeing right now is that there's a delusion, you know, like on way more tracks coming in, you know, like that kind of spreads these more and more and more, which is going to make it even more complicated 
to understand. So I recommend everyone to not focus so much. I think the streaming platforms is more result today. Like that's where you can read what worked, but you need to go back to basics. You need to build fan bases. It's better to have like a hundred and a thousand people that really loves you than trying to get picked up by recommending engine or an editor for playlist. That is true. We very, very back to the basics and the competition is tougher than ever. And I think classic cases like Oliver Anthony in North of Richmond, you know, where you just saw this truly authentic amateur country artist singing a song that just resonated with everyone and that, and it just exploded, right? Yeah. And that happens every time. I mean, like if you look at the Spotify's top list, I promise you, if you go through, it's going to be TikTok songs, all of that. But what I mean with like, it's, it's not really Spotify today or any other streaming platform that actually breaks the artists that they used to do. That is happening outside Spotify. That's like the relationship, which I think the attention span of Spotify on oh, TikTok is so short, but the people that are able to, we usually talk about the industry. The only thing to measure streaming numbers doesn't mean anything. It means like, can you still sell a thousand tickets? Can you sell merch? That's where every artist should ask the question. Everything else is not relevant anymore. Streaming will happen. That's a result of that, you know, like, but I think the focus is right now, people need to understand that they need to go back to the basis if they're going to make it in the music industry. And there seems to be artists that understand that implicitly, you know, like Taylor Swift from very early on seemed to understand the game and played the game exceptionally well. And, and you know, no other artist has, seems to have those sort of events sold out at that scale where you can actually just quickly shoot a movie and then book out cinemas as well. It's crazy. So what I mean is that also like people talk about like these legacy artists, if we talk about the YouTubes of the world or so whatever it is, like how much money they made back. Like, I was like, you don't know what you're talking about. The artists today, the big ones, the Drake's, the Taylor's, you know, like the weekends, the post, whatever it is, like they're making so much more money today than any one of these legacy artists ever has done. You know, like there's no one that has generated the kind of money that Taylor's doing on her era kind of brand right now with the tours and the cinemas and stuff like that. So there's something that is really wrong when the old generation talks about like how much bigger brands they build in the old days. There's no Pink Floyds anymore. There's no like, they're talking about all the classic bands, but you have to look at the data and the data tells you that the artists of today is more successful, reach more people, selling more tickets, like everything. They're generating so much more money because the difference is right. Taylor controls her brand. She owns all the recordings. She owns everything that she do. And she even re-recording every album, you know, because she's, she's one of a kind. Like when people ask me, like, do you think it's going to work? I say like, I don't know. The only thing like never count out Taylor, but if you look at history, no one has been able to re-record old records and become more successful, but she did. And I mean, like, I didn't see that coming because no one has proved it. It just shows that she's like, her fan base is so enormously dedicated to her, you know, like, and love her so much. So if she puts this is the Taylor version, everyone's going to turn to the Taylor version, you know, and suddenly like the original masters is going to decline, you know, like, and the value that used to be tremendous in the streaming world will not be that much anymore, which is another part of that story moving forward. But all the power moving over to the artist, that's the biggest change, you know. Catalogs owned by these record labels, which basically are owning, you know, like they own catalogs and they are banks, you know, like, but the true creatives and the true ownerships and the gatekeepers of the industry is the artist today. So Nick, last question, mate. 
with all of the success and moving forward that you've had in life, when the moments come, you know, when it's like, gosh, this may not work or it's too much, what do you do or how do you get yourself back on track? Is there a kind of one thing that keeps you going or you just kind of a happy guy and everything just works out fine every day? Yeah, I mean, like I'm, I'm not, I mean, I've failed so many times in my life. I don't take anything for granted. We cannot look at TSX and say like, we don't. It's a long journey ahead of that. It could change. I mean, things happen in the world all the time. So I'm really cautious around this and I'm very humble around success. You know, I'm doing things because I love it, but I have very high personal principles, meaning like if I wake up a day and don't think this is fun anymore, I'm not going to keep doing it. So like these things changing, sometimes it's really tough. And it doesn't mean like I wake up one day and like, oh, it's not fun. I'm going to quit. But if I feel that like things changing, which could change around your surroundings or whatever it is, like. It sounds weird, but it's not important for me. And it has nothing to do with money. It's just like, I'm 57. I know life goes too quick. And I can't spend time and walking around and not feeling good or being happy or whatever it is. Because I have seen both sides. Like, I know what it means to have, even if I don't have crazy money, but I know what it means to have no money. And I know what it means to have a little money. The honest truth is that only people that have experienced both knows that money is not by itself bringing happiness it makes life easier but you really need to soul search yourself and find out like why do i exist and what makes me happy and i think the biggest trick is not your business it's about like how can i make every day in my life being good and i think it's all everyone is keep driving for the next thing and i think that's including me and I, have to remind myself like you're living now you don't know how it's going to look in six months you don't even know if you live tomorrow you have to enjoy today and it's a challenge i tell you that is like the people that figure that out they are the most happy people in the world that's awesome mate and on that note very very insightful and philosophical I'd love to thank you again, Nick, for being so open and generous with your time. I just thought that was such an awesome podcast and there's something in that for everyone. So thanks very much for coming on The Few. Thank you so much for having me. Boom. Have a good one. Cheers, mate. Well, that wraps another episode of The Few. And I'd like to thank our partners without whom this episode wouldn't be possible. Firstly, Ode Management, an organization that brings world-class speakers into your event or organization to make a profound impact on your people to deliver the results that you want. And Afterburner, real life fighter pilots, a team of men and women who for the past 25 years have helped organizations surpass their expectations, learning the tips and tricks fighter pilots use to win 98% of the time. If you enjoyed the show, please show your support by subscribing to the podcast, The Few with Boo, or our YouTube channel. It's been an absolute pleasure sharing the stories of these remarkable people with you. I hope that helps you keep the dream alive, but more importantly, equips you with a few ideas of how to turn those dreams into reality to help you become one of the few too.